This is First Contact, stories of the call center. Brought to you by Noble Biz, your one-stop shop for all your contact center needs, both carrier and software. Each show, we talk to industry leaders on how they got their start in the call center industry, because let's be honest, it's not a dream job. Find all our episodes, you can go to our website, that's www.nobelbiz.com. Hit subscribe on our YouTube channel, or follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for future episodes. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to First Contact, Stories of the Call Center. So for those of you that have been joining us normally, you've been able to get and see some of the best of the best in the industry, be able to see who's out there, what their stories are, and what's going on. So we're really excited today to have an industry expert, uh, been in the industry not only for a long time, but been able to do some special things for people. So today's topic is really going to be around addressing what it is that people are doing when it goes out into choosing their contact center platforms, technology, what we're seeing in the space. And so with that, I'd love to be able to introduce somebody who is not only a leader, but their title is really interesting, right? So right now I'm going to go bring in Frank Wassenberg from Cloud Links. And Frank, thanks for coming to the show. Appreciate you joining us today. I want to start the way I do with every single guest we have. How did you get into this space? Because I know I know you didn't wake up one day and say, man, I can't wait to work in the call center space. Walk me through how you got here. You know, so, yeah, Christian, thank you very much for having us. It, it's it's kind of it's it's kind of an interesting story. You know, well, I guess it's probably a simple story, really. You know, I, I did not wake up and decide one day I'm going to be a contact center guy. You know, that wasn't my that wasn't my story either. So that's probably universally known. Um, it, it, I spent probably it, the best way to describe it is probably a two sided story, really. Right. Uh, my past story is pretty simple. You know, I spent 16 years or so being part of and running a master agency and carrier out of New York. I learned a lot there, a tremendous amount, growing that business from 10 or so people to 125 or so when I left. Um, I had a great run, really trying to differentiate what was largely a commodity sale through enhanced service and support, really. You know, you, if it's a commodity, how do you really make a differentiation selling PRIs and selling SIP services? You've, you've got to support it to death, Right. Um, so we had to do better with better people and better processes to support and get the sale done. What I, what I learned in the current story of how I got here is I left several years ago. Um, I had the luck of landing with a partner who saw the context and the work that I was doing really as, as the ability to become a real niche for us because it removed us from that commodity game and took us into the business of improving how people do business, right? You know, we, we got together. We decided that we didn't want to chase SD, SD-WAN during that rush and any real broadband or small UCAS deals. For the most part, we were bored with that sale. We didn't want to do it anymore. Um, the CCAS space and the people we work with today really offered us a fresh perspective on our day-to-day lives. You know, No more opening up the kimono and saying, here's a spreadsheet with some arbitrary suppliers um, that for you to choose as a client. No, now, now we engage in the nuts and bolts of how they do what they do and why they do what they do. It, it, you know, it was and is just a lot more enjoyable for us. We actually have a, a tangible impact on how pe- people do business and, and what drives that business as opposed to some back-end infrastructure that really, for the most part, only a few people see. So 
we stayed with that. And with the people that we work with, they have such a genuine appreciation for what we do for them and the mistakes we help them avoid that we just chose to make this our, our go-to business model and stay in just the CCAD space for the last several years. Well, I think it's really important right now, especially when we look at that experience that you've had over these years going trial and error, you said making mistakes, and I want to dive into that a little bit. But when we look at these mistakes, it's very costly and in time and effort and money for businesses to be making these mistakes, I'm sure, when making decisions for stuff. So when you saw that niche where you went out there and you're seeing this way where you can help people not make those mistakes. I'm sure you've made some mistakes along the way and you've learned from them. So I want to just go back and say, all right, what's the biggest mistake you've made professionally, of course, and you know, how could, uh, in this space, how could you help clients avoid that? No, that, that's kind of a great question. And I think the biggest we st- mistake we made was born out of a lack of understanding early on, right? And not, not understanding the technology, but understanding that for the for the contact center managers, really, the people doing this day to day, this will often be uh, a CCAS migration will often be the most high profile and expensive purchase that they're involved in throughout their career. Right. It's, it's very visible. And the mistake we made was not really being empathetic to the fact that that was the reality. And we didn't put enough time to get the C-level people on board and get the executive team singing from the same hymnal as the contact center manager. They had different goals, and we allowed that to happen. So I think what we really do now is we put a ton of effort getting everybody on the C-suite in line with the person that's running and taking calls. You know, Getting the CFO to speak the same language as a contact center manager is tremendously valuable. And if you don't do that and come up with a very simple mission statement for what you're trying to do, they'll never line up. It just won't work well. And you'll have different goals in the demos of the products. You'll have different goals in what you're trying to accomplish. And we just put a ton of effort now making sure everyone's on that same page so that um, the CIO, the CTO, the CFO speak to the same language as a contact center manager, especially when those people never will take a call and manage a call with a client. So they don't, they don't know what the, what the daily struggles are. Yeah, I think we use the term consensus a lot within our organization is building consensus and understanding that each stakeholder truly has a stake in it, but it's sometimes very different than hugely different, right? Hugely, and 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 that's interesting that you pull it that far back that it's not the technology, it's not that what it does or doesn't do, it's not what are you doing today, it's understanding that there's a process and people involved in that organization, first and foremost, that will be the ones making the decision. And to go after that first, then it makes everything else more timely, less costly. You're not wasting stuff. You're not expending uh, extra resources. And totally makes sense. We say it a lot on our end. So you being able to go in there with that expertise allows you to obviously give probably not only better outcomes, but you probably get a lot more buy-in. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you you look at what's happening right here, and if a CCAS migration is going to work well, some people think, now I've got this huge toy that I can play with, and I can start asking for all this information, I can start building all these reports, and I can start doing all this stuff, and now they don't even know the what questions they're asking because they have so much data in front of them to sift through, and they're asking the wrong questions. And then if you don't have that mission statement, 
that even something, think of something as simple as a demonstration of a supplier tool. How many, how, Christian, how many demos have you run where afterwards you were like, that person only wanted to hear one thing, that's all they wanted to hear about, and they were thrilled, and I'd spent three hours doing the rest of it, and they didn't care about it, right? And unless you build the, the demo, you, nothing that like a, 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 magic sec, a magic section of a, of a report is going to be built for you. It's not built for you, right? You need to understand how your business is run and what you're doing so that everybody's operating off the same page and trying to get the same goal. It's mission critical and avoids false starts, which are hugely expensive. Yeah, no, absolutely. So now let's kind of pivot a little bit for the fact that you also host a podcast, right? And in that podcast, the CX Experience, um, you had to have gained some insight, right? Some sort of business relationships you've been able to glean and see what you have uh, from it or you're getting out of it. Is there anything that was unexpected you got from it that you kind of want to share with everyone? Um, you know, the first one is it's, it's actually a lot harder than it looks to do a podcast because I don't know what you're talking about, about, Frank. I don't know. Like it is hard to do the technical elements of this thing, right? You know, our pot, we put the questions in there on the screen. We try to get the audio right. And I think once one, some of the technical elements were a nightmare to figure out because we're doing it in a work at home environment. But I think the, really the heart of your question is, is what we found was that there's just a ton of experience out there. There's a ton of knowledge out there. And the people that we bring on, we bring on authors of books, we bring on CX leaders, we bring on customers of ours, and they're all willing to speak good and bad about the things that we do or we did for them in, in the customer example with no other benefit to them other than just helping the industry rise as a whole. Right. And I think that candor was something that we weren't expecting. You know, we had we had a client on the other day and she was super honest about the four or five things she did wrong and we did wrong together in her migration because she was making a couple generations in leap of technology. And there was a couple things on her side that, you know, she didn't understand the impact X, Y and Z would have to a client or she didn't understand why a client would have a problem with something that she feels is is ubiquitous in the industry. So I think our, our biggest surprise was really just how open and honest people are willing to be for the benefit of everybody on a podcast. Yeah, and I think that's great that we have these avenues to be able to share those experiences, because not only does it save other people of having to go through those bad experiences, but no one is an expert at everything, at everything that you do and everything you use. So there's always going to be ways that it's not just a mistake. It's going, I didn't know that I could do that. I didn't know that I could empower people to do these things or that I could create this level of experience. So I said earlier something about your title. And so I want to kind of go back to that. And I want to look at that a little deeper because now we've talked about what you do a little bit. We've talked about your customers and your podcast and your experience, but your title is interesting. You have CCAS <laughs> practice leader and managing partner. So I'm sure you had a ton of titles throughout your history. Oh, You've seen God. a lot of titles. But from your side, kind of explain a little bit of what what is behind the title and why is this important? Sure. So, you know, one of the things, <laughs> the title is kind of part vanity and part function and part, I, I think you need to get something in LinkedIn that makes sense, right? So the vanity part, the managing director part, the managing partner part was really just, I'm an owner of a business now. Uh, we're a young business. And that was more just saying, hey, I'm an owner of a business. But the, the CCAS practice leader part is really the more tangible thing that I talk about because the way we broke up the business is all I do is contact center for the, for, for the business, right? I don't spend time on broadband deals. I don't spend time on, uh, on MPLS services or UCAS. I spend time in contact center. 
I run and manage the procurement process for that, my clients. So I built the title of practice leader as one to advertise that, that that's all we do. Really, that's where our core focus is. 90% of our pie chart is built on contact center. My two partners, they assist in the, uh, the, the carrier services elements that inevitably come about with a contact center migration. Understood. So, you know, I think function is really important in role and being able to understand what value you bring or what you're what you own and what you do all day long, the value you bring to the business. But let's kind of shift a little bit now to the overarching role that many people will box in and say sales. Right. Well, Frank, you're in sales. Right. Or Christian, you're in sales because your role functions with selling somebody a service or something, right? But I think sales gets a bad rap because the perception behind sales is that someone is selling me something and I'm not real I'm I'm not participating in this interaction. It's just happening to me, right? And and that always has a negative feel when it's especially something that really doesn't add value to your day. So when we talk about sales and the roles you've had and the role you have today and even the things that I experience what is it that you see works really well when you go out and you interact with people for the first time and it's not like, oh, you're just another sales guy coming in trying to sell me something, right? It's a you're bad word. Sell me, right? What is it that, you know, obviously your title doesn't say sales. Obviously, the, the connotation around being sold is never fun. So what is it that you're doing, the business is doing? I know you said that you're more consultative and you're learning from mistakes, but what is it that makes it so that you differentiate from being that salesperson? So I think you and I, you and I probably have in that question would probably have somewhat of a similar but different answer because you are who you are in, with a supplier and I am who I am with what should be a very agnostic sales approach. And my sale is not so much I have the better mousetrap. My sale is this is going to be something that you're going to have to go and do. It's something you may not know what you don't know. It's something that you have to understand and digest a whole lot of people talking to you at once that all have really great solutions. And you're going to use outside expertise to come to an understanding, but it's still on your plate to do. So my, my sales process, and I think where the value for me comes in is if someone says to me, Frank, what's your, who's your competition? My competition is the client going and just doing it alone. Right. And what we bring to the table is we bring the ability for them to instantly catch up on, on experience that they just don't have. Right. And I think that comfort level and us being able to give them that comfort level that, hey, you're not in this alone. We will help you with the needs assessment. We will help you with the, the current state analysis. We will write the RFP, manage the RFP before you even talk to a vendor. You will know who best matches your technical and your usability requirements before you ever speak to them. Right? To me, if I can get people to understand that, then the whole financial model about how we work, how we get paid, and how, how, we, how we will stay involved and how we will not be involved is, is an easier process than, say, for example, like any old vendor who has to go sell them. Our pitch is very different in that regard. So I think it helps us, and I think it's hugely valuable for them to look at us and say, they're going to ride next to me this whole time. They're never going to leave. Pro this project, and, and people will put their hand up and be like, Frank, we're nine months to 18 months away from going live. How are you going to make money? Well, we, we, we invest the time in this, so we have clients that will go 18 months before we see a single check. And so, you know, it takes a little bit of time to get some buy-in on that. 
So let's kind of unwrap that a little bit because I think a lot of times, regardless if you make the decision to do it in-house or bring on uh, CloudLinks into the, the fold, there's time, effort, resources, and expertise that needs to happen to be able to make these decisions, right? And to hopefully make the right decision. Many times, because there's so many vendors in the industry, um, people will just go like, well, let me do some quick research. Let me Google some names. Let me go yeah. see what I've used before. Or maybe someone has uh, experience with one of these. But all those things really don't go back to what you just said, which was, what are you gonna try to achieve? What are your goals? What are the different stakeholders' goals? So from your perspective, when you look back and say, okay, why would someone want to do it in-house versus bring someone in? Can you quantify at all the amount of time and resources and effort a change like this would take nowadays? I mean, it's enormous. Like to put a dollar amount to it is kind of tough, right? But timing and effort. Like, are you saying one person could go out, do the research and kind of say, hey, everybody did the research. This is the one we should go with. Let's go for it. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, done. I read a book. There you go. Right. It's it's not really I I wouldn't say that's the way to approach it. The the way I look at this is there's two or three sides to this process that you have to go if you're going to make a migration to see guys. I'd be interested to see your take on this, too. But you have the pure selection of the vendor. Right, I got to find the right vendor for my business. It's not going to be the one that everyone else is using potentially, but it's got to be the one that's right for me. Then you've got the running of the day-to-day business. You got to keep the lights on. You've got to keep doing your day-to-day job. And then you've got the whole what I don't know, right? The processes, the procedures, your integrations, your dependencies, your CRM. You got all those th- those things that have to work together and. No one person, I think, can sit there and say, I've got all three of those covered. Don't worry about it. I'm going to do it. No problem. It's a lot. So I think one of the biggest things that we bring to the table is we're going to do part one. We're going to understand your business. We're going to understand how you're doing your business and why you're doing your business. And we're going to help you find the right supplier. When we come in to see you, we're going to hand you a list of paper and say, do you have this part covered, which is understanding the operational complexities of change management? You know, Is your CRM up to date? Do you have your lists organized? Do you have your client data organized? Do you know if a client's in China or do you know if a client's in Jersey? You know, you have to have all those stuff detailed out. So w- let us work on our part, which will allow you to do this part better so that when it's time to make the switch, we can meet and have a successful project. To me, that's really hugely valuable in all three of those elements. Yeah, it, it is, especially when you're so early in the process, right? Because it's Absolutely. rare unless, you know, from a vendor's perspective, unless you're the one creating that change, meaning you've made them realize something that they could do that they don't do today that would be impactful to their business, or you've been in there and you've been able to engage them through being able to see that their business really is hurting in some way, right? There's something wrong with their business enough that change is not only probably something they should do, but they're probably actively looking. If you're in that early, then sure, you can become probably part of the part to help guide if you have the right expertise and you really believe that helping the customer is the utmost important thing because we're not everyone's cup of tea. We're not yeah. the best fit for everybody. And I think the sooner that a vendor can realize that, the better you're going to serve that company because you know right then and there whether you're doing it behalf of yourself or behalf of the customer. Now, you're soon and, and I think, Christian, I think, and honestly, honestly, the deals that you and I have talked about, you know, I think that principle you just brought there is hugely valuable, right? And that's where some of the negative connotation earlier about sales becomes, because what's a sales guy's job? Even if they say they're consultatively selling, 
A sales guy's job is to crowbar them into that sale no matter what, right? I'm going to fit into that glass slipper no matter what. And <laughs> if, <laughs> if it works, no matter what, it's going to get in there. But your job, and I think what you've said is, listen, we're not right for everybody. So it's better for us to lose quick because we're not the right fit. And ultimately, it'll be the wrong sale for the wrong client, right? And that's where I think you've done a great job in saying, we're not everyone's cup of tea. We have to do what's right for that client. Otherwise, they're just going to wind up hating us in the end. I, I, I want to give that tremendous credit to you guys on that. Well, I'll take hate all day long for a variety of reasons, right, that sometimes could be genuine. But here's the real thing. You said it earlier. Going in there and putting in some circuits or some PRIs or SD-WAN or whatever, um, sometimes you have backups. It's behind the scenes. It's not as visible. It's not as tangible. But the CCAS. I mean, you oh. can break a business. You can literally kill their company, kill their experience with their customers, kill their revenue stream. It's not something simple. And people don't just go like, oh, I feel like I'm going to put my reputation on the line and go choose another vendor today just because I don't like what I have. We're creatures of habit. We get stuck with what we have. We learn to know what we deal with, even if it's not perfect, because the model is not broken enough where we're literally losing money every day and we're, we're, we're incapable of functioning as a business. So to make that change, you have to make sure at this point in the decision making is if you bring in cloud links and you look at how do I approach this holistically as a whole core of my business and then go out to look for vendors, then that helps in a lot of ways. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that say, I'm going to do this myself. Um, and I'm not saying unfortunately, I mean, it's not a good decision is that many times what happens is in those scenarios is you said earlier, they got to keep the lights on in that second pillar. They got to run the business. It takes a lot of time to properly vet internally what the business needs and what you're going to do. And that last pillar you said, you don't know what you don't know. I don't know how many people that you're going to run into that have done this 10, 15, 20 times where they've vetted a lot of companies already. They've implemented a lot of companies. They've learned from those mistakes. They've seen with what went wrong, right? And those are costly both in time, money, and the experience of your customers. So as we go through that part, right, and we hop out of the sales mode and we go, okay, well, this is our role. This is how we help people kind of thing. Um, we also look at why is someone going to go through all this pain? Because I've never, ever, no matter what business says it, gone through a painless migration. There's always pain. You're learning There's something new. Something doesn't go right. What well, Something wasn't scoped properly. I didn't know what I didn't know. So Absolutely. when you go back and you look at this, why would someone go through that? Why would they go from a premise system to a cloud system? Because I would have to say the large majority of the overall seats still have some form of pre premise system um, as part of what they're doing today. Listen, th there is, you're talking really then, you're talking about the benefits of CCAS, right? Like, why would I go through this, right? I mean, Absolutely. the people people don't go through it because they're, they're, they're afraid of the unknown. They're fearful of change. You know, there's very tangible human traits about, I don't want to lose my job, you know, especially during a pandemic. Oh, but yeah. if you sit there and say, why would a client look to a, a cloud-based contact center that's going to make sense for them? There's just a ton of benefits that I would think at. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, you've got uh, IT complexity and security. You know, if you took a look at IT, just simply IT complexity, you're going to reduce that tremendously from security to the daily burden of management. That's going to be off your table. You're going to have feature availability and ease of deployment that's unbelievable for you, right? No longer do you have to go buy a service pack, figure out an implementation schedule. It's all there waiting for you to do it. It's already built. It's in the cloud. Um, centralized reporting and visibility for the executive team. You know, how many different systems do you have 
that you have to deliver reports from, that you need some third-party software. Now you don't need that anymore, right? Cost and speed of deployment are another reason why you'd go to the cloud. You can quickly, quickly activate services and and and, and features. Um, collaboration tools, right? The, the collaboration tools within the context center, it's all there. It's all a single dashboard. Change management simplicity, you know, that that's all there. I mean, there's a bunch of benefits that I think would fall under those headers, but those are really kind of good catch-alls for why you would do this. And I think when you make this transition, one of the major things you need to be thinking about is not how good is it going to make reporting for the bosses and how good it's going to be able to give me all these features. It's going to be how well is it going to make my my enabler's life better and then how well is it going to make my client's life better right after that. And obviously you're not going to realize any of these things if the migration plan isn't properly put in play and it's not done well, right? Because I can imagine that migrations, that actual project plan being put in play and going smoothly, as smooth as it can go, obviously, uh, can make or break the whole thing, right? That's where the most pain I can imagine being felt is that moment that they're going from what they do today while they do it and then transitioning to something they haven't done before, or at least the way they've done it. So can you walk me through from your perspective, if you had to write a plan, if you had to put something together, what does that properly put together plan look like so that you do have a successful implementation and migration? Yeah, I think, you know, the transition is really where the rubber meets the road, right? The, the, the implementation is the fulfillment of the sales promise, right? That's when things go from, oh, it's going to be glossy to, oh, this, this is it, right? Mm -hmm. And no matter what you do, you even when we do it, you still, you can ask 500 questions, but it's the 501st and second question that gets you, right? You always got to ask these things because someone will bring something up. Oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, we didn't find that out. But if I had to say the things that would be, or the steps that I would look at, there's probably five or six steps that I would look at, right? Get your CRM working the way you want it, right? You have to make sure that that's clean. Get your processes, the integrations required, all those dependencies, get them mapped out. Let's know what they are down to a T. Build a simple mission statement from where all other processes and decisions will come from, right? That I can't stress that enough how important that is. Um, make a shift with the agent in mind, and we call them enablers because they're really the tip of the spear of your organization. They're the ones enabling your mission statement. Yep. Um, make their life easier, and then the client's life will be simpler, right? Have that philosophy in place. Choose a vendor that meets your needs, not the one that any sort of magic zone is going to tell you that's the right one for you. You know, More often than not, the person that wins the technical capabilities doesn't win the deal because of usability functionalities for your agent, right? That's a huge difference there. Uh, and, and don't try to boil the ocean at once, right? Let's get simple steps and consumable change. Let's make sure that that's at the forefront because if you don't do those things well, you're going to have cost overrun. You're going to have a lack of confidence. You're going to lose your prestige in the organization. You're going to have poor results. So if you look at those five or six steps that I said, I think those are the blueprint that everything else will come from. Yeah, when we find implementations that go successfully, the, some of the things that we look at and we see that adds to what you're saying, and it may actually be fully encompassed, is a lot of times there's assumptions that things work a certain way. There's just blindly, oh, I just thought it did that, or I thought it did it this way, or that's normal, that's standard, right? And if you can uncover those things earlier, those little nuances of literally what do the users experience, the supervisors experience, the managers, the ones building reports, what is it they experience versus the big picture, but also going down into walk me through what you do 
Because that one thing that they do, literally for them to learn differently or to change a process or to teach somebody how to do it, um, could become literally that person that makes life much harder for that implementation. The buy-in isn't there, um, or even that role doesn't exist anymore because that requirement isn't there. But for the transition, you need that person there, right? So yeah. being able to know that that piece, I think, has been really important as well in the implementations. And then also on top of that, when we look at the implementations, I think your point around boiling the ocean is such a great analogy because a lot of times you're surviving today, unless the only reason you're not moving is because like you're failing miserably or your system is literally collapsing regularly and you can't function, unless that's the driver, your business is working today, right? So being able to at minimum do as much or if a little bit more than what you're doing today isn't going to like kill you. You don't have to put every feature, every function possible, because you may not have a lot of people in-house that are experts at implementing that feature functionality, measuring to it, and managing it accordingly. Because if they're not used to doing email, SMS, or other omni-channel stuff, they may still treat it like many people do today. They're all siloed off. They're all reported separately. They have different teams that are being managed, and they're not cross-trained, and it doesn't give a better experience anyways. So I think those are some things that I'm sure you're doing that are enveloped in those five or six pillars that are critical to the property. I agree. I, I agree. And, and one of the things you, you said I, I think is, is worth mentioning is that there is a lot of assumptions made that a certain technology is just going to work a certain way. Like speech analytics is going to work because I'm going to say a name into it. You know, we, we worked <laughs> with one client that um, the, the vendor that they were working with, why they were making their switch was unless you had some very specific waspy names, it would not understand what name was being said. And if you said the name with any sort of accent into the analytics engine, it wasn't working at all. Their, their group of clientele happened to be the latter and nobody was understanding the name. So the whole technology was wasted and all the call deflection was wasted. So the agents were just taking the calls anyway. You know, there's testing that has to happen on that front. And I think that's what you, you know, you go in, you, you can't make any assumptions in this just because it's a technology. Chatting is another one. Like, how many times have you had a conversation with somebody about chat and they think the, the chat bots are actually going to be like Michael Knight and, and Kit? They're just going to work and they're going to understand everything I say. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. And they're going to have some, some sort of database that dips into has all the answers and the knowledge base. And they're going to somehow not have to have agents anymore for that, that Done. functionality. And it's good. Yeah. And, and the perception when people say new, shiny, the latest, greatest, it's that thing they're reading about. Um, you know, there's tons of different vendors with different capacities with these individual pieces, whether it's gamification, whether it's QM, whether it's QA, whether it's speech analytics, all these different things. There's people that have different levels of functionality and then also it's different systems work or don't work well with some of those systems. You said one thing right there. I think gamification, right? To me, this could be the greatest technology in the world for a business. Or it could be the single worst thing for a business. And it can depend on your culture. Are your people ready for it? Ready for it? Do you have the reward structure in place? Do your agents want to sit there getting avatars and silly things like that? Or do they want to get movie tickets? Like that that one technology is somewhat polarizing in organizations. I've had people stand up and say, get that thing out of here. We want nothing to do with that. We've got it all figured out. And other ones say, I need it. And then are you using it as a carrot or a stick? You know, there's a cultural thing with that that you have to understand. And I, I think your point is very valid when you talk about gamification. Like that is a make or break kind of technology. Yeah, I think in the end, the technology is just the vehicle you use, but how you use it 
is actually more important. And you can't get to the how you use it until you understand what you want to get out of it. And if you don't know what you can get out of it, you need to work with someone who knows. What could you do with it if you don't know it? Because then otherwise it's just a shiny object that you spend time and effort in. A famous African proverb says that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And how true is this for the contact center industry where business partners that you can call friends are so rare? At Noble Biz, we made it our mission to travel far and wide with our partners. As a complete telecom services provider with an experience of over 20 years in the industry, Noble Biz offers the only voice carrier network designed with the sole purpose of serving call centers, big or small. Because our goal is to become the ultimate provider for the contact center industry, service quality is on top of our priority list. We will guarantee crystal clear voice quality, legal backup, smart routing, 99.9% .9 uptime, high grade security, and an easy setup. At Noble Biz, we are confident to affirm that we have the best cost per minute in the entire contact center industry. Do you have any doubts? Get in touch and find out. Learn more about the Noble Biz Voice Carrier Network on www.noblebiz.com. I know from you, you've learned uh, across different verticals, right? And you say, hey, I don't focus on a certain vertical. We're not specific to this is the industry that we serve. But you say, look, you learn from all the industry um, that you serve. And there's things that can go from one thing to another and that you can learn that is actually transferable. Is there anything that comes to mind that you've learned that, you know, somewhat is transferable regardless of industry or vertical? I mean, process of the, the process of CX, right, is is for the most part straightforward, right? Make the interaction with a client as seamless as possible so they can get the answers they want with as little friction as possible, right? That, that's really what you could boil down CX to. Um, what we have found and why we haven't kind of verticalized or why we haven't standardized on just working in the medical field or the financial field is that, you know, I, it's probably encompassed best with a, you know, a quick story. You know, we, we worked with a client. They had, they were going to, they came to us and said, we're going to see CAS solution, Frank. I said, okay, that's, that's interesting. Let's, let's go through why and what and how. And when you got into it, they were making two generational leaps in technology. They had an old phone system still working on PRIs, no VoIP capability within the system, and now they're going to go fully cloud-enabled for their context. And they had a switchboard, as it was, <laughs> right? They had a switchboard. Yeah. And, you know, this was a couple of years ago. And they'd been working that way for 30 years. And the reason they worked that way for 30 years is because it worked. And they didn't even know what they didn't know. So all of their processes and procedures and capabilities were limited by that technology. They had wonderful people but they just couldn't get the job done because the, the technologies were really limiting. So one of the reasons why I think, you know, to the heart of your question is, is, is we're able at that point to come in and say, we've worked with a retail organization. We've worked with a financial organization. We've worked with a hospital organization. We've worked with a manufacturer and distributor. These are things that they're doing that you could look at um, and, and build into your business. You know, I, I, we work with a woman by the name of Amanda Russo, and she always says, no matter what, if a business is a mirror image of yours, there still is no boilerplate answer for that business, right? Law firms are law firms are law firms, but no two law firms are the same. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And everything kind of comes from that for us, right? You have to do what's right for your business, your people, your culture, and which is why we don't just work in law firms, because even if we just work with law firms, it would still be very different for every single one. There is no template for an industry. Yeah, and I think that gets to the heart of what you do, right? You have to have that knowledge to go in and be able to start pulling that stuff out that you know is going to be different, even though that person says, well, I'm just in this industry. Don't you have something out of the box that, you know, this industry does? And, you know, a perfect example that we had with a client recently was um, they were doing something in a very particular way to raise uh, money through fundraising, right? And their approach was very manual. They built a process and a system around it. And that process and system made it so that it really delayed the amount of time it could uh, get until they got that pledge, until they actually got the money. And the reason that they had that process built is they just didn't have the right PCI system in place so that the people that were making the call could be compliant and taking the payment. So that this huge process of people and systems in play and checks and balances. And we said, well, forget the technology for a minute. What if you could just do this while you're on the call? And then not have to mail them stuff and wait till they got that stuff back. Ah, ding, ding, ding. Confirmation. And they're going, well, that'd be great. So it's not about us having all the answers, but I'm sure that in one industry that takes payments and you figure out how they take it or how they route calls or how they manage their staff and how they stagger potentially their timing and remote work, that those things could still be learned and shared with other industries and verticals. And that's what's great about what you're doing. Absolutely. You know that. You know that I can go in there and I can do those things. So let's kind of talk about the pandemic a little bit right now, because you have a unique view of seeing all these different industries and different verticals. And since your focus is cloud, right, and especially in your role, it's purely cloud. You had to have had people that wanted to convert to cloud, but there also had to have been outside of cloud things that you were seeing that people were just adopting or wanting to go into or changing their business model Anything you want to share, things that you saw that were surprising or like, wow, you know, people really just did this or made that adoption or quickly made these changes outside of the obvious of I have to get agents remotely working, which was like you didn't have a choice. Yeah, I mean, there's some struggle. I'm sure you probably saw as much, if not more than we did. But I mean, I I think the pandemic was interesting in that it it opened up a lot of uh, it opened up Pandora's box for a lot of people. Right. You there was a very stark line of people that said. I'm going cloud, and people said, "Get the cloud away from me!" Right? I mean, it was it was uh, it was there. It was a broad line. It was, you know, those decisions were very made. And we had clients that said, "Hey, we have to make this transition in in, in three months. We want to be off." And we have other ones that seven months in seven months into it were saying, "We're still not ready for it. We don't want to look at it. We want to be because I, I think where in a time of change, if you know what you know, you want to stick with the devil you know, not the devil you don't know. And I think that was one of the things that we kind of understood. And I think the struggle comes from an, is really an industry as a whole, right? When you're a contact center manager and you're working with, um, if you're working with your technology, you may not be able to see how I can replicate that technology, how I can recreate that process, how I can improve these things, because you just don't know. I mean, we had one client that we had to say, you're not ready for it. They had the will to go forward. They had the buy-in from the executive level to go forward. And we went to them and said, guys, you're going to make this whole transition, but you're not ready for it because so many things on your back end that you're describing to me are messed up. And it's just going to be wasted. And the end of this, you're going to hate me. So I, I think there's a, there, there's a, the, the, the pandemic was very stark in its, its impact to people and how they made these decisions. But, you know, if, if it just highlighted that the need for back end tie-ins to be done properly 
is, is, is paramount, right? CCAS is not the answer if you don't know who your clients are, right? It has to be done properly. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I, I hear a lot for the reasons why in the camp of premise and staying premise, especially during that line being drawn, was security, client requirements. If you were an outsourcer, that the agents had to be there uh, for either security reasons or you know data integrity, uh, but then also reporting. You know the flexibility and access to data out of a premise system for some people. It's like I've already built my reports. I've already built yeah. all the stuff that I yeah. have to do for people, right? And going and trying to recreate that in a cloud system isn't easy or it can't be done the same way or um, it's something that can't be done. But I did see companies, big companies that big companies. were always really focused on security and data integrity and access to reporting. So the time you've been doing this, have you seen the CCAS market mature enough where you're at a point where you're at parity or more when it comes to access to data, to being able to say that I can manage the system accordingly, I can be secure, I can be safe? Or do you still find instances where premise is still, from a technology perspective, the thing that you have to stay with? Yeah. So, so Christian, how, how long have you, you, you look young and sprightful. So how long have you been in this industry, right? How long have you been doing carrier services, technology, contact center? Yeah. So I've been with the Noble Biz for almost nine years. And I've been working okay. here doing this with them. And then prior to that with other companies. So you doesn't this sound like the conversation we had 15, 16 years ago about UCAS? People taking phone systems off it. And what was the number two, one, two, and three reasons that they said they couldn't go to a hosted VoIP solution? It's almost mirror images of what you said. It's like we've come full circle in this world, right? The cloud is always going to present those challenges, right? This is almost a reiteration of I can't go to UCAS because it's not secure, the, the, the enemies are going to hack my system and take over my phone system. And while that still does happen in everybody's system, it's more prevalent on prem-based systems. Hacking a system and getting into a, a system is, one, more financially liable to the business if it's on-prem versus it's in-cloud because there's no, there's, no, um, there's no contractual obligations there. But I don't think those things are I, – I think, again, it goes back to the industry as a whole is not communicating that message maturely enough and in a way that people can digest it. Right. And I think that's probably the biggest failing as a whole, because I don't I don't look at those reasons as valid. You know, maybe when you're a 30,000 person call center and you're in a center and you've got certain things that you want that have to be there and they're on prem and you've got a system that's built and you've got all these interdependencies that are tied together. Maybe that's valid. But, you know, security reporting. I don't know. I don't know if those are valid anymore. Yeah, I would agree with you that, you know, I think at some point in the past that was the case is that you got the scalability, you got the pricing yeah. model, but then you were always lagging in feature functionality or access to the system, right? It was a very closed system. You weren't able to really do a lot. Or if you did, it was a big overhaul and a big cost, time, effort, things like that. And I don't think that those exist that way anymore. Running a contact center these days takes a great deal of courage and resilience. Noble Biz applauds and salutes the contact center community for not giving up and fighting the good fight, working to set contact centers on the road to success. Our contribution consists in providing one of the most versatile and cost-efficient omnichannel solutions on the market called Noble Biz Omni Plus. Take your contact center to the next level with Noble Biz Omni Plus. Get instant access to a full range selection of channels, from voice calls to SMS 
and from email to WhatsApp, Twitter or Telegram. Get control over the external factors with the possibility to switch from an on-premise team to a remote system in just a matter of hours. Get integrated compliance support, advanced reporting, seamless agent dashboard and many more high-grade features. All in just one product, NobleBiz OmniPlus, a crisis-proof solution for scaling operations. When we talk about you know things that maybe have not gone right, I'm sure you have some horror stories, right? Some things that just went really bad, whether that was with the vendor, whether that was the customer side, whether or not it was just even on your end. But you have anything that you can share as far as something that just really went south with uh, a, a deployment or a situation without naming names where it's something you learn from or something where you sit there and said, look, you know, this is something that we definitely got to grow from. I think, you know, I, I think probably one of the, one of the bigger things is that you can make a mistake on this industry is trusting but not validating, right? Trusting but not verifying. And, I, and we've made these mistakes in the past, right, where people think, oh, it's going to the cloud, so it's going to be covered. And because they emailed us a technical requirements document, my backend guys have it and we're good, right? There, to me, one of the bigger earlier, around, earlier mistakes we made was not getting security and IT involved early enough. Now, it sounds contradictory to some of the stuff I've talked about earlier, but you have a thing that's built for the cloud. It's built to work for a thousand different types of customers. It's pretty standardized. The, the, the fly in the ointment is always that individual client land, that individual client network, their security posture. So we, we put a lot of effort to avoiding mistakes where if the security team and the IT team need to be brought in and they say they did it, we verify that they did it. We do testing, we do procedural management, we do a lot of work to make sure that those little nuances are there because we had one client that came to us and after seven weeks of poor call quality, I did every single thing under the sun to check that this thing was being done right to the point where I paid for my own guy to go onto the client site and check their firewalls. And the day before he was scheduled to go on site, the IT guy stood up and said, we did some checking, it's working, check this. And everything worked. And everything worked. I couldn't believe it, I was, I was in awe. And that, the, what happened was something as stupid as SIP ALG just wasn't turned off. And we've been asking, we've been crying about that for weeks. So we do a lot of that work. I don't wanna blame IT guys in this regard because they're often the last to know. So we put a lot of work into making them early on in the process, but these are things you have to do. You have to, you have to verify every little detail because you're making a major shift. Yeah, and I think that's critically important, not only for the implementation, but the experience of all involved, right? If, if you have a system that has poor quality or you're having issues, all the people that are getting in the front lines that right, are the enablers, are the managers, they're going to sit there and go like, oh my gosh, this is having problems. I don't want to deal with this, right? So the more you can do up front so that you can have those successful proof of concepts or those testing or UATs or whatever you're doing at the beginning stages, when you start getting that experience of the system with the people that will be using it beyond just the people that made the decision to use it, you won't, you've seen it, but you won't believe how many people out there they're just like no we checked everything we've looked at it all we have it set up we made the changes and the two most common things we find is one the person that's managing the system is used to the system they're using 
but they're not used to using it in a different configuration, meaning they're not mm-hmm. really comfortable because it wasn't required. So they don't always have the knowledge at that time or to even think about looking for those things when they bring in this other thing that they didn't really know how it was going to work with it or interact with it. So we find that often where they kind of do some research, it wastes time, and we want to do that up front so we can not have to check that box after everyone gets a poor experience, right? The other part ends up being is that they, the system in of itself, they just assumed it was going to work a certain way and it should just work that way, right? So they don't actually go in and verify, like you said, what happens. And then again, you run in those scenarios, which is never fun. They're now, painful, man. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can't imagine for everyone involved, other than the things I've seen and the things I hear uh, that companies go through when they don't have the right things in play and the right people. We always go back to buy-in. If everyone doesn't know their part, when it gets to that piece, it's easy to drop the baton or fumble it. And that's absolutely race. Absolutely. And that's why UAT is so critical. I mean, you bring up, you mentioned UAT, but it's almost, almost passing, but UAT is so important and having so many people involved that it, it, it becomes a negotiation point that you have to have a, with the vendor, you have to negotiate in a certain level of UAT so that you can do it. And, and you got to remember that those vendors have teams of people that have to work with you that cost them money too. So you got to be able to do, do this and be efficient with this time so that they're not losing money and it, it winds up being an abbreviated process. Absolutely. So let's kind of shift now that we're getting to the end of the time for today around some things about you, right? So I know you're from New York and I know that New York obviously has had a different experience when it comes to COVID from opening up now to being more closed and you've kind of been in the heart of it. Do you got any insight into kind of how that experience was and what it's going on now? You know, I I, I think, you know, Yes, I'm from New York, if you couldn't tell from my accent, right, which I've tried very hard to get rid of, but I failed. Uh, um, you know, we, we were sitting here during the early days of this pandemic when you're sitting there watching news and 2,000 people are dying a day and you're kind of like, this is, this, is, this is insanity. And now you're trying to open up. And, and, and to me, this is the most critical time, right? Obviously, when people are dying, it's, it's, it's terrifying and it's scared, but you're almost ready for it because they told you it was going to be that way. Now you're opening up and you've got a whole different cup of tea that you're thinking about. You've got people who are and who are not vaccinated. You've got a city that for the most part has been through one of the most, one of the most crazy transitions in its life from, um, from protests to homelessness to businesses shuttering to people that just don't want to go into the city to the deli that you went to for 20 years not being around. And now you're going to say, let's open this up and everyone come back into the city. Right. So it's 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 somewhat scary. And I think you've got to get events going. You've got to get you've got to get not just the guy who runs the events. You got to get the guy who runs the businesses and the mayor and the governor on the same page. And then you got to get that poor person who's been working out of their house in a T-shirt and shorts for six months for for well, however, 18 months now to want to get back on the Long Island Railroad, which is in their mind, the disease filled drain you know they don't want to get on it because they've been so clean lately you know i didn't have a i didn't have a cold this year christian you know i think a Um, lot of people could say that including me so it's like i don't know i I used to cram onto the long island railroad with a hundred people in a car and the person next to me sneezing for 20 minutes you know and like you didn't think anything of it because you're like oh it's the winter i'm gonna get sick you know that's how this is the process but now i didn't get sick the whole year so to me opening up is scary it's opening up is, is 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 needs to be managed properly and i think for contact centers in particular, you've got to be empathetic to those people. And, uh, you know, very early on in the pandemic, we called this the um, 
the world's largest case study in work-at-home efficiency, right? And I think it's proven that people can be effective. I think the struggle that businesses are going to have is there's nothing like the feeling of belonging when you're in the office versus when you're at home. It's just not the same thing. I mean, could you imagine starting your career, working out of your house, never seeing your boss live, never having one of those off-the-cuff conversations about development, about growth, about life in general, never building those same friendships that helped your careers later on. It's very it's very scary for people. And I, I think they need to open up. And I'm a big fan of getting people back into the office, even with cloud technology, because I think it's better for everybody when we get back to what was kind of normal. I think it'll be interesting to see the dynamic between those who experience being in an office and whether they were or were not capable of making that transition remote versus people that remote and communicating digitally has always been your experience, right? Because I could be in a room with four, uh, you know, people that are between, you know, five, 10 years old that are playing on a, you know, a game on their phone versus some teenagers to college students that they're all in the same room, but they're not talking. They're all communicating via the the, the phone no, in the sales room, me. right? And that's not to say that people of all ages don't do that as well, but I'm curious to see going forward that there's just going to be this group of people that they may have been working in the restaurant and service industry and in their entertainment business. And they said, not for me anymore. I'm going to move into a different type of role that has a different level of stability and maybe it uh, accommodates my my needs more. But seeing yeah. what the future will hold, I think, as we open up, and we will, and as people start traveling, do you have anything, any in particular plans of any travel that you want or that you're going to do non-work related, kind of just something you're like, man... I can't wait to do this again. You know, it's it's funny. I'm a I'm a I grew up in Rockaway Beach in New York and I was probably a five iron from the ocean. So I was I was a, a big ocean basketball guy and I'm I'm pumped just to go back to the beach this summer. You know, we we joined a, a great beach club out here in Long Island where I live now and we didn't go to it last year. Be mostly because I, I was probably the guy with the shotgun and the and the police tape around his house saying, stay away from me during the pandemic. I didn't want anybody near me. Um, but I'm actually anxious to go back to the beach and get back into just day-to-day life with the kids. I, I think it's been – and you could have a whole show on how unfair this has been for the children, obviously. My kids learning from remotely. It doesn't work. But I'm excited that sports are opening up. I'm excited that I can get back to the beach. I'm excited that I can get on vacation. My, my children are being vaccinated now. I'm really excited to be at the point where we can just get back to doing the things that just – they're things you take for granted. Like you take for granted the the beach time. You take for granted going surfing with your kids. I mean, yes, it's nice that I spent a, a year at home. I redid my kitchen. I redid my floors. I redid my gardening. That's all great. But, you know, that's different than going onto the beach and surfing with your kids, you know. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that element of it. And then business-wise – I don't know. Are you going to trade shows? Are you getting Are you getting back to the trade shows this year? I think I am. We, we've got a bunch of time that we're going to go to the trade shows at. Yeah, I think my first one is actually in June. And then throughout the rest of the year, there are some that are going to be out. Some are more smaller, intimate um, type uh, environments. And some obviously are going to be a little bit bigger. So we'll see, you know, uh, for those of us that are fully vaccinated and we're in situations where um, we can still socially distance and, you know, interact. It'll be interesting to see because it's been a while since I've been to an event and seeing people in person <laughs> Me too. In that way. You may forget how to interact, you know. With <laughs> You're going to walk up, start shaking hands, and going to be grabbing people by the head. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. not the way That's not the way you do this. Yeah. And even that, 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 that awkwardness of do you shake hands now? Do you fist bump? Like, what do you do now? You see, I was like, oh, my God. You're like, hey, you. <laughs> yeah, you. I know you. You. I, I drink, but stay over there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Frank, 
It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I love the discussion. I'm hoping everybody who's watching that loved it as well. Now, obviously, there's people that said, Frank, I want to talk to you again. I want to talk to your business. How do they get a hold of you? So the best way to find us is 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 uh, collaboration at cloudlinks.com. That's our email address. We have a website at cloudlinks.com and, and LinkedIn. You can get a hold of us. Um, I don't want to give my number and stuff on the podcast, but I mean, uh, you know, uh, that would be, be the ultimate in cheesiness of me. But, you know, getting a hold of us through cloudlinks.com is, is the best way, really. And, and, and if you're going to any of the, the big trade shows, we'll definitely be there. We have a good presence at those, and we're looking forward to that. Awesome. Well, you heard it, everyone. You better go onto the social media aspect of connecting with them on LinkedIn, their website, and obviously you can send them an email. So for everyone who uh, you know listens to us and has these great uh, interactions, uh, we'll be back next month. So thanks for tuning in. Until then, stay safe. Thanks, man. Good talking. If you like what you're hearing, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Check out our YouTube channel for exclusive clips. Like us, rate us, review us. If you want to hear more on our take on coronavirus, remote work, and contact centers, go to NobelBiz.com and click on webinars to see our recorded on-demand webinars. Thanks for listening to First Contact Stories of the Call Center. My name is Christian Montez, and we'll be back soon with our next episode. This podcast has been hosted by me, Christian Montez, produced, written, and edited by Bogdan Minutes, with co-executive producers Steve Biederman, Christian Montez, and Bogdan Minutes.